We're joined today by Bill Mitchell. Thank you very much for joining us at the Sustainable Prosperity Conference. You're welcome. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying such exciting things. What was exciting? Well, that's what I'm going to explain for the listeners who couldn't be at the conference. The listeners, I think Bill, so far of all the people we've listened to, brought the most pieces together so that rather than seeing individual bits in depth, you could see lots of pieces coming together as how you could build a package. And one of the things I really like you said, Bill, I think would be a good place to start, is that MMT is a transition-type tool. It's a way to get started before you decide what endpoint you want. Is that something you would like to elaborate on as a starting well, point? Well, I think... I'm not sure I agree with the terminology, but that's... I'll change the terminology on me then. Yeah, I think, I think let's start with what it's not. A lot of people say, oh, a lot of progressives get very excited when they come across my work and they say, oh, it'll be great when we move to MMT or when we have some MMT policies, won't it be great? And the point they're missing completely is that we live in an MMT world because the MMT is a lens into understanding the way the modern monetary systems, and by modern I mean fiat currency systems, historically currencies were backed by precious metals, or they were precious metals. But our currency's Australian currency is worthless tokens. And so what MMT is about is understanding what that currency, how it works, how the monetary system works, which by, by that I mean the components of the monetary system, the banking sector, the central bank, the, f- the fiscal capacity of the currency issuer, and to understand what the currency does by way of feeding, uh, uh, motivating operations within the economy. And we can talk about that more. And also it allows you to understand more fully the uh, capacities of the currency issuer. Now, that's really important because what I, call the veil, what I call the veil of ideology, the neoliberal ideology, has created what I think of as a fictional world for us. We all really live in a fictional world when it comes to understanding what our government is and what it can do because we've been led to believe that the government is financially constrained like a household. Now, you and I are financially constrained in our spending. We have to go to work or uh, use prior savings or sell assets that we've bought in the past or borrow money to spend because we're the user of the currency. Whereas our federal government, the Australian government, issues the currency as a monopolist. That means it's the only one that issues the currency. And so just force of logic should tell any serious person that how can that entity be financially constrained. And so I think that once we achieve what I call an MMT understanding of the actual world we live in, rather than the, the fictional way in which we've conceived of the actual world we live in, then the veil of ideology lifts. And to me that's an incredibly empowering democratic shift in our, under, in our perception because we would no longer tolerate politicians saying that we have to tolerate 10% unemployment or we can't do anything about climate action or whatever because we don't have enough money. 
or because we're not prepared to tax people more and all of the stuff that's used to provide a smokescreen on the government acting in a desirable way to advance our welfare. We immediately know that that politician was lying and so the political narrative and what would be acceptable and what wouldn't be would shift. So the politician would blow their cover. The politician would have to say that, well, we're not going to do anything about unemployment or the unemployment benefit in, in the current debate not because we don't have enough money, but because we don't want to. And they'd have to then explain in the political process what they mean by don't want to. We want to keep people unemployed or whatever. So to blow all of that open. And so that's what MMT is. The idea that there's an MMT policy regime is nonsensical also because the understanding is just a knowledge issue. We become better educated about what the system is and how it works and what the consequences of doing A with the currency would be as opposed to what the options of doing B with the currency would be. But to then operationalise that understanding in a specific policy framework, you have to have what I call overlay that understanding with your value system or your ideology. So uh, in crude terms, left and right, for example, I'm on the left, obviously everyone knows that, and I have an MMT understanding because I was one of the original developers, but I will have a different policy agenda than a person on the right who, who would have the, could have the same understanding as me about the MMT. And that's what seems fantastic here is that if you can get the analysis of how money works making sense broadly, so that left and right both understand how money works, then it's genuinely a competition of yeah. policy ideas. Yeah. So when I was reading Warren Mosler's... It becomes a competition of values of then, ideas. And, and, yeah. and it's explicit then. It's not the, the value competition isn't hidden by the fictional world any yeah. longer. Like I remember when I was reading Warren Mosler's original thing about soft currency economics... And I think it's about 1992 or 93, you'd know the date. I'd yeah, 1993. But yes. you're reading that and you're going, he's describing what he sees in the world. Mm. He's not inventing something. No. And I can't remember if it's in that or in one of the later things he wrote where he's describing going to Italy to talk to the Prime Minister yeah. and the Treasurer. And he's going, now, here's how this money's working. Now, what policy decisions would you like to make now you understand how the money's working? Well, actually, I mean, if you listen to our latest video where Warren and I, the two originals, got together mm. in Newcastle and had a bit of a chat about how we feel about the progress of our work and you'll hear him talk about that. And he went to Italy to make money mm. and it was explicit. Mm. He had worked out that he could that everyone was buying the fiction mm. And uh, he, he had surmised that the fiction was a fiction mm. and that uh, if this was, if, if it, what we now call MMT was true, was the actual way the system operated on, he could make heaps of money based upon their ignorance. Yep, and the Italian government were able to go, oh, and see past the ideology and yeah. separate the analysis yeah. and the ideology and then choose policy. Exactly. And that seems, you know, something Stephanie Kelton said yesterday that really just rang such an important thing, I think, for people to understand. It helped me to lock things deeper in, only now being three months into reading about this stuff and talking to Stephen. And that is, it's not a question of how do we pay for something, it's a question of how do we resource something we want to do. 
So it struck me as being a really powerful idea yesterday. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I said yesterday also, that mm. the money story leads you to a resource story. Mm. It doesn't lead you into a fictional world about pay, paying for things. It leads you into a debate about are there real resources available? What are they going to be, in my context, what are going to be the environmental impacts of using resources in particular ways? What are going to be the skills that are going to be have required to use resources in a particular way? And uh, what are going to be the, the, the implications for communities and society in using resources in a particular way? They're all the questions that MMT poses uh, because the pay for question is irrelevant once mm. you understand MMT. And the big, the big question is about the resource constraints we've got with that. And, and once we start thinking about there, you, the scale of your fiscal space, what's viable is to have a policy debate about and a context of values expands dramatically. If we're going to try and expand out the idea of how do we resource something we want to do, obviously you've mentioned that we'll, have we got the skills to use environmentally have we got the resources and will we want to use them and would the cost of using them be too high? Socially, do we see a social benefit in doing it? Um, These are all the questions. Beyond those three core ones, are there any other major core category we need or most things will fit in those three? Well, I mean, when we think about productive resources, we're thinking about land, labour, capital, you know, machinery and equipment and... Um, you know, a modern economist like me thinks about environmental resources. Mm-hmm. They're the productive resources. You might want to decompose some of them into uh, productive skills and entrepreneurial capacity and innovation capacity. You know, I mean, the sky's you can be as fo- uh, as uh, fractional as you like in terms of that. But that's what we mean by productive resources: the things okay. that we have to bring together and harness to transform nature, including humans, into outputs of goods and services. That's what we mean by production. And the productive resources are the things we transform from their original state into their final goods and services. Now, what MMT does is focus on all of those questions, right? And, And that's where the constraints on government spending are, not in terms of whether they can buy those resources. It would seem from that logic then it's much clearer to see a potential role for government then enhancing productive capacity within a society to recognise, well, we don't have these skills. We should train people. If we did, it would give us more opportunities to do more productive things that we could, in a sense, return to something like the mixed economy but with a better understanding of what we were doing. Well, you know, I mean, we still have a mixed economy. Um, well, a more mixed economy. <laughs> well, that's sort of contestable, and okay. I don't think that's what you want to talk about today. But in my 2017 book, Reclaiming the State, with Thomas Fazzi, my Italian co-author, we talked about the idea that a lot of progressive people think that the state has shrunk and become sort of powerless in the face of global capital. But in actual fact, what the state has ha- what's happened to the state, it's been reconfigured by neoliberalism to serve sectional interests more fully. It hasn't shrunk particularly, it's just been reconfigured. Everything still goes through the legislative and the regulative cap- capacity of the state. 
It's just that the the lobby groups representing capital have done have have reconfigured it in their interests, and the left have really abandoned, you know, talking about those things. But that's a, that's an aside. The more substantive thing you said, I think, was really interesting. Does an understanding of MMT lead to a, a presumption that the state's going to uh, the role of government in the economy is going to be bigger? And the answer to that question is. Not necessarily, because it depends, as I said, it, whether the government's bigger or smaller depends upon your value system. Yeah, what, what and you, so if you've got an economy that, is ex, that has an extreme mental, a mentality to small state, more private market, more private entrepreneurship, less uh, welfare provision, less income support, then your state's going to shrink, even if everybody has an MMT understanding. Yeah. Whereas my feeling is this that once the cover's blown and people start to really understand MMT, I think that most people, and I've written about this, are not, not neoliberal by instinct. I think humans are tribal, are collectivists, are caring for each other, by nature, that's my that's my assertion. Well, that's Nicholas Nicholas assertion. Yeah, well, I'm, that's my that's my yeah. assertion, and so my feeling is that humans, by instinct uh, and by social as social beings as well, by our, our nurture and nature, are anti neoliberal, uh, but they've be, they've been trained to be neoliberals by the creation of this fictional world about, about uh, worrying about their grandchildren bearing debt burdens and mm. massive inflation and uh, tax rises and interest rate rises and all the rest of the fictional world. Mm. And so my presumption is that if everybody gets an MMT understanding, then those characteristics that are anti-neoliberal will play out better because we'll start to learn that the fiscal space is quite is, is very much larger than we think and that the government can actually provide better libraries and better schools and better environmental care and uh, and better public transport and better better grassroots uh, support for sporting events and artistic events and cultural studies and uh, cultural events and all the rest of it. And so what I think we'd see was a larger government because we would identify that more fully with our advancing our well-being. See, it's interesting because I keep thinking what would happen you know, if you had a conservative government who claims to believe in small government who didn't have to say, but we have to do this, we have to be in surplus, we can't leave debt. If they could just say, we believe in small government and we just don't want to spend money because you should look after yourself, at least that would be their policy platform and it wouldn't have the threat of the future attached to it. Yeah, so Even I'm, that would be an interesting an well, interesting world to live in. Well, that's lifting the veil of ideology that yeah. we mentioned at the beginning. What that means is it would blow the, all of the cover out and the de- the political debate then would be much different, and so yeah, a, per, you, a, a right a right sort of leaning government would have to say that we really that's our philosophical position, that's yeah. our ideological position, and they would have to sell it to the people on that ground. Yep. Now I would suspect good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, but but that's the whole point that there's that becomes a more pure in inverted commas battle of values then yeah. rather than 
distorting people's judgment and opinions based upon a, a fiction that we're, we've been that have been imposed upon us. It, it seems like to some extent what we're talking about here is let's do the analysis of how things work first so we can do the values second. And this is turning it around from neoliberalism put its values first, created its ideology, and then analyzes through then, its ideology. Then put, then put a cover, a, a yeah. smokescreen on to hide that value system. Yeah. And they're still inextricable, but the order... The, it's about the yeah. order. Historically... Are we aware of any period where the analysis was first and then the values were applied? Or is it always, well, not always, has there always been some sort of ideology fighting to have power and put well, the smokescreen in there's place? There's always ideologies, contest, contest yeah. of ideologies, and there's always vested interests fighting it out. But if you think about the immediate post-Second World War period, this was a period where... We had massive destruction across Europe and across the Pacific. And what we learnt during the Second World prosecution of the Second World War was that governments could use fiscal policy and deficits to create full employment. Now, the Great Depression, which ran through the 1930s, really just sort of dragged out. Unemployment really became, only became low and we started to get economic growth happening again because we were building missiles or missiles and uh, it was tank, the war that did it the prosecution than, of the war. Yeah. It was nothing more than and, and, and that brought home to people very clearly that the government had the capacity through its fiscal tools to basically create high levels of production and high levels of employment. Now the big debate in the early years of the peace was how are we going to maintain that role for government without shooting the hell out of each other. And most of the Western governments produced what were called white papers, what we call in the, the Anglo system white papers. So the white paper on full employment was produced in 1945. It's very hard to find now, but I, I digitised it and you can get it off my personal webpage billmitchell.org if you're interested in reading that massive text and but but more important understanding what it was telling people it was telling people not the fictional world we get now but it was telling people that we've got a nation build we've got this peacetime opportunity now to build our nation and australia was a relatively poor nation at that point yeah. And it was quite, it was at a time when the government was signing international treaties with the UN on human rights, international treaties on with the International Labour Organisation on the, articulating the government's role as a responsible for full employment to provide jobs for all, and to use its policy. This was this was telling us a narrative, uh, an understanding that the government had that capacity. And it knew it had it, and its role in nation building and welfare. This was when the welfare state started to be created. This was when public education was taken on, public health. The NHS in the UK was yeah. what forty six or forty seven. Yeah, all of this was yeah. in, in our different countries. The same story was virtually being told with nuances for institutional and cultural differences. But it was the same story that we were told and taught that the government had this capacity, was going to take the responsibility on our, as our agents to use that capacity in our interests and it was manifested in education, transport systems, big projects, 
electrification, regional development, uh, schools, universities, housing, labour market, skill development. This is an example of where we were invited to be part of a national building crusade. And that's that's the full employment period. And, of course, that, that started to experience tensions. I was talking about it this afternoon. The, the tensions were that that had implications for the distribution of national income. And the powers to be didn't, the, the capital didn't like it in the end. And we've now got uh, releases of cabinet documents 50 years ago where there's letters to the treasurer from the big end of town, from the industrialists, demanding that the treasurer of the Australian government create deliberately create unemployment to discipline the trade unions and to stop the the the, the wages growth so that there could be a redistribution of national income back towards profits and capital. So that, that was sort of a, the late 60s was the turning point, but those 20-odd years, 25 years, were an example of a nation being invited to be part of a big thing, knowing that the government was our agent and could do things on our behalf, and we wanted them to do it. In that period, you know, Australia is a very tariff-protected economy, isn't it? Like we, we pretty much are trying to make things at home. There's tariff yeah. protection. What impact would have all that been having on well, this process of full employment and you know, the state applying resources to get positive outcomes? Yeah, I mean, the tariff protection goes back well beyond that. It goes back to the early... The Federation, the, doesn't it? The Federation. Yeah. I mean, we, we created the Tariffs Board in 1912 or something from memory. But it goes back to the initial idea that... And this was, this was an idea that all governments had, that if you were wanting to go on a nation-building exercise, you had to build secondary industry. The, the growth model was that you grew through converting, shifting resources from agriculture into secondary industry, manufacturing. And then at a later stage, once you got manufacturing productivity up and released resor- labour resources, you could create a service sector. That was the classic growth model. So the tariffs were designed with all the good intentions to provide, it was called the infant industry argument, that these were infant, infinites, and like our children, we needed to protect them by cosseting them and feeding them and protecting them from danger. And the danger in the industrial sense was competition from lower cost regimes, which either had higher productivity or had more draconian labour approaches such that workers were less privileged in wages growth, whatever. We protected our industry. Now, the only problem was that the the infant industry justification for protection also had attached to it that you had to also provide incentives to the capital to innovate so that over time productivity would grow, unit costs would fall, and the competitive disadvantage that the new industry had would disappear. And the way it was managed in Australia was very poor. What effectively happened was that the tariff protected them against international competition, but the tariff was accompanied by nothing that would force 
firms to innovate and the tariff gave the firms a little profit, a little margin, if you like, up to the tariff, which then the unions and the bosses sort of debated and shared in a cosy little relationship that protected both and didn't didn't encourage innovation. So we sort of lost that opportunity we, of we that period really, after World War Two. We really lost where it. Where we could have gone, hang on guys, you've got the protection while we can afford to provide it because we can apply the resources and we haven't done that successfully. No, we, we ended up creating a cosy little cartel. And so I remember reading a report when I was a, just a student in the late 70s that if we closed the car industry down, we had a motor car industry in those days, if we closed that down, the, the level of protection was so high that if we closed that industry down and the government kept paying the wages indefinitely, it would save money over forever. Wow. It was, an, it was massive. And uh, that was what the Dawkins car plan was about, to try to force some cold air into the industry to force them to innovate. Yeah. And all of that was a period of our history where I think we didn't use economic policy as well as we could have. Has that probably made us gun-shy to being brave because we had such a bad experience? I don't, think, I don't think people generally thought it was a bad experience. They had, they had skilled jobs. They miss it rather than think it was a bad oh, experience. I definitely miss it, I okay. would say. I mean, they had skilled jobs. They had protected jobs. They had... Yeah. Good wages, growth, productivity was growing, not as fast as it might have, but it was growing and they were sharing in that productivity through the arbitration process and the productivity hearings. Uh, they had uh, security, I think, uh, I think they miss it. And again, particularly with a city like you come from, Newcastle, which was such a major industrial powerhouse. We don't have the steel industry anymore, it's gone. No. And again, yeah, we're hoping here that a British billionaire will bring the steel industry back to our Iron Triangle, yeah. you know, Whale of Port, Perry, Port Augusta. Yeah. So it's a terrible thing to sort of understand that this is where this question of if you understand how to analyse economics and what resources you have to apply, then your values become the question of what are you going to do? Yeah. But you can't just have goodwill. You have to keep reassessing the situation to go, is it working or are we creating a yeah, new look, kind of problem? Look, it's not Shangri-La. You no, know, it's a constant adaptation model, isn't of, it? Of ideally? course, and this is what I was talking about this afternoon yeah. with uh, Green Transition, that it's going to be, the, the, if we're really serious about climate change and reversing the uh, vicissitudes of neoliberalism, if we're really serious about that, well, then it's a massive transformation of our resource use our production and consumption patterns, not just a small little shift. Yeah. And and the shift that's going to be required will make a lot of people, if not everybody, deeply uncomfortable. And we, the uncertainty factor will the go uncertainty up dramatically. Going to, yeah. The uncertainty factor can be reduced by a framework that we legitimise through, through the process of narrative and debate and discussion. Mm. But even if we legitimise it and know that we've got to do it, it's not going to be easy on us. I mean, every one of us will suffer costs because we're going to have to change our consumption patterns quite dramatically. Our use of transport, our consumption of energy, our consumption of food, where food's produced, what food's produced, what clothes we wear, that's all going to change. But that'll be a lesser order of cost than the cost on communities that are currently relying on carbon-intensive production techniques, their whole future, their whole 
perception of themselves. It's not just income and jobs. It's, it's identity. It's identity. Yeah. And uh, for them, it will be really big shifts and uncomfortable shifts and very costly shifts. And what I was saying today was if we're really serious about this, then we're going to have to have a comprehensive framework that all of us buy into that makes sure that those communities and those people don't lose. Now, that's a really that's a really difficult thing to come up with. It's it's a really cre- will require a really creative process and a really bold process. And fiddling around the edges and feeling good as we sit in our professional jobs in capital cities and being content that we ride a bike to work isn't going to do it. So I'm talking about a massive transformation. Yeah, we're all going to feel the pain, but at least the pain will be comprehensible and the aim for suffering it is and, and, we'll, and I hope the sort of process I outlined today is, is a process where we're all brought into the story and we're all asked to participate and own it and that uh, we get people who are going the communities that are going to have to change more than other parts of our society we let them know that we're all understanding that and that we support it and we're willing to make sure that they the pain is as minimal as possible but all of us will feel discomfort well bill mitchell i'm gonna have to stop you there and we're gonna have to talk about your greens transition or your just transition whichever we're now calling it a green Green transition transition. yeah but it is just yes exactly well i like the fact that you have identified that because some of the language at the conference has been slightly ambiguous in terms of using mmt incorrectly because it is uh, more of a um, theoretical description than a prescriptive hypothesis Mm. which is what the just transition or green transition may be the green transition is extremely prescriptive mm, that's the point and, we know and, we yeah. want to get to and, and it's and it's come in part because I'm an MMT founder yes and so it's what the group that I we're putting together and we'll make announcements soon about that in public space mm. is now now motivated by an MMT understanding mm. but also by lots of things climate and mm. indigenous rights and social equity mm. and eco ecological type things mm. yeah it's very prescriptive and uh, We'd love to talk to you about that another well, time. We we'll follow up. But you provide us with excellent context, I think, for even the rest of the conference. Yeah, so. understanding the final day. Mm. Thanks very much. Take Thank you, Bill. Bye, Lake. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.